A note to our listeners. On today's episode of Pride, we talk about drug addiction, sex addiction, and sexual abuse. If those are potential triggers for you, you might want to sit this one out. Straw Hut Media. Things are rarely what they seem. In this era of carefully curated personal brands and Instagram feeds, the external image of people we see is not only an exaggeration, it's sometimes simply inaccurate. My guest today spent years of his life struggling with addiction and somehow still managed to keep his day job as a television news anchor. Even through night-long drug-fueled benders, he managed to keep his appearance intact. Until, of course, he couldn't anymore. Brandon Lee has now been sober for nearly a decade. He hosts a podcast of his own about recovery called Escaping Rock Bottom and speaks to groups about breaking the cycles of drug abuse. Today, we'll talk to Brandon about his own drug use, unspoken darkness in the gay community, his journey to recovery, and how a traditional 12-step program didn't match up with his loyalties. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. My name's Brandon Lee. Brandon lives in Arizona now, but he grew up in Southern California in the 80s and 90s. He started to pursue journalism after attending NYU and ended up winning an Emmy in 2007. We went after a fire chief who we found out through sources was a convicted child sex offender. So we did an expose on that fire chief. Um, And then the most recent one I won an Emmy for was for a mini news documentary that I did on the heroin epidemic uh, here in Arizona and needle exchange programs. Brandon works as an anchor for Arizona's family television stations, CBS5 and 3TV. This year, he released a memoir that recounts surviving sexual abuse as a child and how it led him down a path of addiction. The book is called Mascara Boy. Uh, When I was a kid, um, I used to get bullied every single day. They used to call me Makeup Boy and Mascara Boy. Um, On the way to work, I have super dark eyelashes where it does, yes, look like I have eyeliner on. Um, Even to this day, um, I get viewers that email me saying, why do you want to be Johnny Depp? Why do you have your eyeliner? Like, why do you have eyeliner on? And... I don't, and so I finally thought, wow, how awesome would that be um, to tell all of my bullies that this is how you used to bully me, but I don't care what you say or think about me anymore, so I'm actually going to make it the title of my book. In his book, Brandon describes the circuit and party scene that he was a part of in Los Angeles. Drugs were everywhere. And even though Brandon started using cocaine at 15 years old, he managed to avoid it when he moved to New York at 19. I saw my friends doing crystal meth around me, and it's something I just stayed away from. I looked at them all. They looked like Skeletor. I'm like, y'all look gross. You look scary. You don't talk. Instead, Brandon stuck to GHB at first. GHB stands for gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. Medically, it has been used as a general anesthetic and is still used to treat narcolepsy. Recreationally, it's a party drug and a date rape drug. When taken in large quantities, it can cause confusion, drowsiness, vomiting, and loss of consciousness. But when taken in smaller amounts, GHB produces feelings of euphoria and increased sex drive. It's often called liquid ecstasy. That was my drug of choice. 
And I'll never forget, I was in Los Angeles and I had done a dose of G and I was at a bathhouse, the Hollywood Spa. And um, because my inhibitions were lowered because I was had already done a dose of GHB, I met this guy at the bathhouse and we went back to his little room and he pulled out his backpack and he pulled out a pipe and... He asked me, he was just like, hey, do you want to hit off the pipe? And, you know, I did. I said yes, because my inhibitions were down. And the moment I took a hit off that crystal meth pipe, if any of your listeners have ever been to a bathhouse, then you know there are mirrors everywhere. And so when I took a hit off that meth pipe, I looked at myself in the mirror as I was doing it. And like, honestly, when I tell people I inhaled the devil, I really did. I inhaled evil into my body and I saw it in my eyes. It was this cloud of darkness that consumed me. And the, the scary part about that is I remember it so vividly that I, I had like this Joker-esque evil grin on my face that I knew I had met my match. I knew I was going to go down in flames. It was going to be dark, but I actually got excited about that. And I remember those feelings of butterflies knowing that this drug was going to take me down. After that night at the Hollywood Spa, Brandon spent the next six months spiraling. That's all it took for crystal meth to bring me down to my knees. Um, and I'm grateful for that. I tell people I'm grateful that I'm a recovered crystal meth addict because had I not been introduced to crystal, I may have prolonged my recovery. You know, I may have been using for another few years before I hit my rock bottom. Brandon overdosed on meth and GHB at the Hollywood Spa six months later. Luckily, the person he was with called the police before running away. Brandon had fallen and hit his head when he overdosed. And I went to the hospital and they needed to do brain surgery. And when I came out of the coma, I told the doctors I didn't want to have brain surgery. So I unhooked myself from the machines and I started, I walked out of the hospital with my damn Hollywood um, hospital robe on and like those little sticky socks from the hospital. And I walked down Sunset Boulevard and I found my truck and I got back inside my truck. And the first thing I did was open up my glove compartment. I got out my crack pipe and I immediately smoked crack in my truck. And I don't remember anything from there. The deal with the devil is he's going to make you feel so damn good that you're going to want to chase that good. And the problem is, is every time you take a hit, you feel that good less and less until you become this miserable, sad, empty, depressed shell of a human being. And so I remember that first time I did it at that bathhouse, I was like, game on. I'm going to have sex for the next 72 hours. And I did. And it was amazing. I enjoyed it. So what did I do? The next weekend came and I did it. But the next weekend wasn't the same. Brandon remembers driving to Flex Nightclub in Hollywood and sitting in his car in the parking lot. And I started crying. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to go in to this bathhouse. I don't want to be here. And I remember saying to myself, all I want is a monogamous relationship. All I want is to be married to a man. And I want to have a white picket fence. And I want to have a family. And I just, I want to go to the grocery store on a Sunday morning. And I remember saying that to myself, crying in the parking lot. And what did I do? Like a freaking zombie, I turned my car off. I grabbed my bag full of my drug supplies and paraphernalia, and I walked right into Flex. There is a name for what Brandon was involved in during his years as an addict. It's called Chemsex, Party and Play, and H&H, &H, which is the use of specific drugs to enhance sex. 
your ecstasy, your GHB, your crystal meth. Um, those three drugs, I will say more GHB and crystal meth are a prevalent combination that are used together um, in the gay community. And it always circles around sex, the group sex, the anonymous sex, the dating apps, the the hookup apps, the grinders and everything. And if you ever see the people who write party with a capital T, you know, that's a, a call saying, hey, I party with crystal meth and Tina. Sociologists have been studying the effects of chemsex on the gay community for a few years now. A 2018 study published by HIV Medicine reported that gay and bisexual men in London who engaged in chemsex were five times more likely to be newly diagnosed with HIV, nine times more likely to be diagnosed with hepatitis C, and four times more likely to be diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection during a 13-month follow-up period. It isn't clear how many people are engaging in chemsex culture, but studies estimate it's around 10 to 20 percent of a given gay population. You know, when we surround ourselves with people who are doing what we're doing, we don't think what we're doing is bad. And so I thought it was totally normal behavior that everybody was having chemsex. And the crazy thing is, is that it's a small, you know, it's this fraction of the gay community that is it's not everybody. And and I just my mind was so warped into thinking that everybody was doing it because the people that I surrounded myself were all doing it. I know for a fact it's still very, very prevalent because I work in the field. I don't work in the field of recovery, but I, I speak in the world of recovery and I sponsor a bunch of guys in recovery. And so um, absolutely crystal meth is still a huge, huge part um, of the gay community as so is unsafe sex. When we come back, how Brandon juggled working for KTLA with his addiction, near-death experiences, HIV, and bug chasing. When I was there at KTLA, we had makeup, you know, we had hair and makeup and these hair and makeup people like I would show up after being on a bender for like 48 hours and I would look like hell. I mean, I would have dark circles around my eyes if they weren't already bloodshot. But these makeup artists, I mean, my God, they've seen everything. Right. I mean, actors and actresses just coming in high and wasted and they make you look like a million bucks. Brandon remembers another time when he had overdosed and fallen in a bathroom. He had a black eye but he had to go to work. Wildfires that is currently part of the reason why our air quality has just been so bad over the last few days. There was wildfires that were happening in Southern California. And uh, my bosses at KTLA, they're like, dude, we got to send you to the fires. You might be gone for a couple days. And I had a total concussion. And I told my photographer, I said, listen, don't let me fall asleep. Um, I had a falling accident. And I was like, so I just brought my pillow, but just to lay down in the, in the, in our satellite truck. And he looked at me like, are you okay? Like what's going on? But like, yeah, that's the high functionality because here's the thing. I told myself this. So as long as I still had a job, I wasn't a drug addict. So as long as I still had a paycheck and a car and a house to sleep in, I wasn't a drug addict. And so that's the trick that high functioning addicts will always use as a defense of their drug using. They will always say, yeah, but I have a job. I have a great job. I've got a great car. I've got a great family. I have all these things. I haven't lost anything. Brandon was able to convince himself that he hadn't lost anything for a while. 
He thought of his lifestyle as embodying the classic belief that if you work hard, you should play hard. No, that's a false belief. Because if you live your life like that, work hard, play hard, eventually that play hard will wipe out all of that hard work that you've done in your life. Like there's no way to sustain that. And so I was so high functioning that none of my bosses at KTLA knew that I was a drug addict. None of them. Yet I came to work off of benders and I would come come in to work after a drug overdose. I mean, hell, I used to get high in the parking lot at KTLA after the newscast was done and I would do a dose of G in the parking lot knowing I had 15 minutes to make it to the bathhouse before the drugs would kick in. Bug chasing is a, a big part of your book, which actually when I got to that part in the book, it... I don't know why it surprised me, but it did. I describe it as the the ugly underbelly of the gay community. Um, it's something that happens, but is never spoken of. I was a bug chaser. If you've never heard the term, a bug chaser is someone who seeks out HIV-positive men and wants to be seroconverted through unprotected sex. This is what a bug chaser is. A bug chaser is somebody who wants to get HIV. This is somebody who wants to be converted um, at a conversion party is what I went to in Palm Springs. And they would have these pause parties. And so there are sex parties. And these are all guys who are positive, HIV positive, And they will convert somebody who's negative. Um, and so you're going to ask me, well, how do you even find these people? Easy. Just go online on any app. So if you go on Scruff... Um, or you go on Grinder. there is a tab on it and it says chaser. And so some people will just look at that and go, oh, that means they're a chubby chaser. And I'm like, okay, no, that's not at all what it is. And yes, that's what they'll want you to believe it is. But if you actually hit that tab that you're a chaser in the description of who you are, um, I did it in my book to show my editor, book editor, because he didn't believe me. <laughs> he had never heard of it. And he's also a straight man. And so I uh, uploaded uh, Scruff to my account and I hit Chaser. Within about 30 minutes, I had two invitations from guys who were HIV positive, And their message to me was, hey, do you want to be converted tonight? And so there are a group of guys out there who are HIV positive who actually get off on getting people positive. And then people ask, well, why the hell would you ever want HIV? And it's really simple. I know it's very dark and twisted, but it's a very simple answer. When I would go to these sex parties, a lot of times in Hollywood or even Palm Spring, which used to be my devil's playground, is that after a wild weekend of uninhibited sex, unprotected sex, they, then I would sober up and realize what I had done for three days and I would immediately go into panic mode and I would go get tested and there would be days of panic being like, oh my God, is this the time where I got HIV? Is this the time where I got it? So I was like, screw it. Screw that. I was like, just give me HIV and then I can go have all the wild and crazy sex that I can have and all the crazy sex that I desire without the fear of actually getting HIV because I would already have it. During this time, Brandon visited the LGBT Center in West Hollywood and spoke to a mental health counselor. The counselor asked him, why are you so angry? And I'm like, I'm not angry. He goes, why are you so angry? And he repeated that question to me over and over again. And he asked me again and he goes, don't answer. He goes, let me tell you why you are so angry. He goes, because people who go to Palm Springs and try to get HIV 
are angry because people who love themselves would never do that to themselves. And he was, I credit him for being one of the first people to ever cut right through my BS, my bullshit. Like he cut right through it and he was right. He was right. I obviously had a lot of self-hatred as to who I was as a person at that time to want to inflict myself with HIV. After stalking you on Instagram a little bit, just to figure out like, okay, who am I talking to? It did make me very sad because looking at you, I know because I'm in that community and in West Hollywood, I'm, I know I'm sure how people perceived you right. was that you were kind of perfect, you know? And to know that someone like that on the inside was hurting that bad, it was really sad. Um, did at the time, I know you talk about like your, you know, your attitude was kind of like, screw it. I'm just going to get it. And then I won't worry about it anymore. Were you afraid of Sero converting at that time? Or like when you would go get tested and be like, am I going to get it? Were you afraid or excited? Like, does that, did it scare you? When I went to the LGBT center in West Hollywood, um, after my last bender, um, I remember this conversation with the doctor. I looked at the doctor and he was testing me for HIV. And I looked at him and I said, doctor, this test is going to come back positive. And he goes, why are you so sure? And I told him everything that I had done. And he concurred. He goes, okay. He goes, well, listen, we're going to have a counselor on hand for you to talk to you and help you with some resources. Because I knew that it was going to come back positive. And I looked at him and I said this. I said, but doctor, when that test comes back positive, I need help. I said, because that is going to be a green light to me to kill myself. And by that, I meant when that test comes back positive, I don't want to go back to Palm Springs and use crystal meth again because I'll die. And I knew that crystal meth at that point in my life was going to lead me to my death. So I just remember telling the doctor, the test is going to come back positive, but doctor, when it does, I need to get help because I don't want that to be the green light for me to go live this crazy sex life that I've been living and kill myself. So there was a psychological shift that happened after that last overdose coming out of that coma that I just didn't want to live that way anymore. And I know a lot of your listeners are going to wonder, well, is he positive? Um, and the answer is no, I'm not. And it's baffling to me. Um, and I actually have had to deal with what I call survivor's guilt in many ways in that I've told my therapist, I've had a couple of friends, including a boyfriend. Um, I dated a guy who was HIV positive, um, for a couple of years. And I remember my boyfriend at the time who was positive had unprotected sex a handful of times and, and he got HIV. And here I was being so reckless with my body, being so reckless with my life. I mean, having sex with at least 50 guys a weekend at these sex parties and I didn't get it. But what I want to tell people is that like, I don't feel like special. I, it was really hard for me to understand as to why I didn't get it. Um, because I had done everything. I had done everything to get it. Um, and so it's, it's really a disease of the mind and a disease of the way we think. And 
it really was just me, as you said, is like, I just didn't love myself. I just wasn't proud of myself. And that facade of trying to portray that perfect life, it was over. And that shell just started to crack and I just couldn't hold up that facade anymore. HIV and AIDS are very different now than the first reports in 1981. Mortality rates rose steadily from 1981 until 1995, but have dropped off significantly since then. Medications like PrEP are extremely effective in preventing the spread of HIV, and new treatments like antiretroviral therapy, also called ART, help people living with HIV lead longer, healthier lives. When we come back, imperfect methods of recovery, finding your purpose in life, and surviving. For many people, dodging a positive HIV diagnosis after engaging in risky sexual behaviors would be considered a miracle. But for Brandon, it would take more than a miracle to set him on a path to recovery. He was back in the hospital after overdosing again. And they put me in this, like, they put me in my own room and I was crying. Like, I had broken down. I was crying. I was just so sad and shameful and depressed. And this little nurse, she had to be five foot nothing, came over to my, my bedside and she held my hand and she said, Brandon, do you believe in God? And I said, no, I don't. Um, and she goes, that's okay because God still believes in you. We all make mistakes. Um, I only have about $10 in my pocket. And what I want to do is I want to give you these $10. And I want you to make me this promise that once you leave the hospital and you're released, I want you to take this $10 and take a cab and go to my church down the street off Melrose and Mansfield. And they have these little AA meetings there um, on Thursdays and just make me this promise that you'll at least go. And so I made her that promise and I went and I went to that AA meeting. And the crazy part about it is I've been sober ever since that day, February 22nd, 2010. And by the grace of my higher power, I have never relapsed. And that is a big part of my story is I want people out there to know that relapse does not have to be part of your story and that there is a ton of relapse with heroin and crystal meth addiction, but I was able to do it and I've never relapsed. And I want people to know that relapse absolutely does not need to be part of your story. So in the book, you talk a little bit about um, PrEP in particular. So a question I had for you is, you know, back then, seroconverting was not a, a real, you know, scare for you. Does it scare you now? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I am so of love, shape and mind of my body. Like when I tell people I love myself, I know that that sounds very egotistical and very arrogant. But because right, we're taught as society as a young child. No, we can't tell people we love ourselves like that's terrible to say. Um, but no, it's actually a very positive thing to say and that I really do love the man I am today. I really do. I love the person I am today. I love 
that I'm living a clean and sober life. I love that I get to travel the country and speak to people. I love that I get to have an impact on people's lives. Like I really love the man I am today. Um, and I am on prep. I, I don't want HIV. I don't want to put poison into my body. I don't want crystal meth in my body. I don't want GHB in my body. The thing that keeps me sober is not going to a bunch of AA meetings. No, it has nothing to do with it. What keeps me sober is my spiritual connection to my higher power. And so as long as that's, that connection is very strong, so as long as I continue to love and care about myself, if we love and care about ourselves, we won't harm ourselves. And it really is as simple as that. Drug use is nothing but an escape. It is no different than somebody in your office today who's having a really shitty day at work. And what do they say? I can't wait to go home and have a drink, right? So drug use and alcoholism, it's nothing but an escape from something that's gone on in your life. And for those people, I challenge them to say, no, there's nothing wrong with my life. I just like to use recreational drugs. What I will suffice to say is no, if we really go into your brain and we really go into your history, I guarantee you that there is some sort of trauma that has happened. Because I used to tell people this, Oh, coming out was so easy for me. I didn't have any trauma. Everybody loved it. You know, I didn't have any, that is like, the biggest line of BS that I could have ever sold. And when I'm being very truthful about it, it was very hard for me to come out. I was an athlete. I played soccer overseas in Europe for a time in high school, and I couldn't be gay. And it was very traumatic. And I was bullied. And so all of that, even being bullied, is a form of PTSD. And so if that is not treated, and if we don't confront that trauma and we don't fix it, it will come out sideways. And so I am a huge believer that drug addiction is absolutely tied to past trauma. Brandon had been clean for 60 days and got a sponsor when he moved to Atlanta, Georgia. He was a straight guy and he was, I, we always called him a Nazi sponsor. Um, and it was basic. I had to call him every single day. And that was tough for me because I didn't want to be accountable to that. Um, but he made me accountable. So I had to call him every single day. Um, he also made a rule that I couldn't have sex for an entire year, right? Because he was like, no, your drug use and your sex use are so intertwined, we have to unwind them so that you can eventually have sober sex without the connection to the drugs, which when you think about it, that makes absolute sense. So um, I actually couldn't even function for the first six months of recovery because all of my sex use had been tied to my drug use. So when I got sober the first six months, like my body, I couldn't even get, I couldn't even get hard. Like I couldn't function. That's how connected sex and drugs were to me. So that, that really wasn't a hard time. But then he said, no porn. And I was definitely a porn addict. And he asked me, he goes like, what are they doing in this porn? You know, and he's a straight guy. And I'm like, he goes, I'm like, it's pretty hardcore. And he goes, are they using drugs? And I'm like, oh, they're definitely high. And he goes, good. So essentially you're brainwashing yourself into only being able to get off by watching guys who are high. And I was like, wow, that was kind of an epiphany for me. And he goes, every day for 15 minutes, you're watching porn. These guys are high on crystal meth. And basically what you're training your, yourself and your mind to do is to only be able to get off when somebody's messed up or fucked up on drugs. So I had no porn for an entire year. And what that really did was help me rewire my brain. It really did. It just helped me rewire my brain because they always promised me that sober sex would be the best sex you ever had. And I'm like, that's impossible because I had amazing sex high on drugs. And the reality is, is that sober sex is amazing. 
You're so in tune, you feel everything, you're like, you're connected. Brandon has been sober now for almost a decade, but that first year of recovery was a lot of trial and error. I've tried to do it my own way for so long. You know, there were so many times. The last thing I wanted to do was to go to a bunch of sobriety meetings. <laughs> so I tried to quit on my own. You know, I was like, okay, Brandon, like, you can only party once a month, you know? And I tried controlled drinking. I can tried controlled drug use, but I, it would never last because the moment I started to feel good, I was like, I feel great. So let's go party this weekend. So that first year was tough, you know? I didn't have any pink cloud. It was hard. But with the help of AA, Brandon discovered his faith and found his higher power. And it was just these little aha moments along the way that I knew that there was some higher purpose for me in this world that I should be dead 10 times over, but I'm still here. And I finally have come to the realization that my higher power obviously kept me alive, not so I could be some news anchor making a, a solid paycheck, you know, and, and take a bunch of vacations, that I truly believe that my higher power saved me from death 10 times over to help save other people. And that is my purpose in life. And that's simply to share my story openly and honestly and being authentic about it and not being scared or shy, you know, to let all of my dirty closet and the skeletons in my closet expose. It's to help people. Even though Brandon is no longer a member of AA, he says he's grateful for the help and support they gave him when he was on his path to sobriety. But as he stepped into an advocacy role, he realized that he didn't want to remain anonymous. Um, but I'm forging a new path of my own recovery and sobriety um, to be able to speak openly about it. I had a lot of pushback from people in the rooms when I wrote my book and I went and I spoke publicly on CNN and MSNBC and... You know, they accuse me of violating a lot of the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous about speaking to the media and speaking on podcasts like yours. Um, I'm not allowed to say AA and Alcoholics Anonymous um, if I were a member. Um, and so I decided to respect their traditions by no longer being a member. Um, but it also goes to say that there are so many ways to get and stay sober. Um, but it always comes down to your faith and your spiritual connection to your higher power. And that higher power does not have to be God. That higher power can, you know, if you're somebody new to recovery or you're out there and you're, you're using and you're listening to this podcast, I mean, you can make me your higher power. Somebody who just is showing you the light, you know, showing you that there is hope out there and cling on to it, grasp onto it, hold on to that. It could be a freaking door handle. It could be anything. Just admitting and humbling yourself to saying that there is something out there that is greater than me. And that's really what it is. And I found that through the written work by writing out all of my near-death experiences to where my sponsor in AA looked at me and he's like, damn, dude, don't you believe now? Like, you should be dead. And i that's one of the aha moments that I had. Other experiences in AA that pushed him further away from the community had to do with loyalty between sponsor and sponsee. I had a guy ask me to be his sponsor. And in one of our first meetings, he told me, that he had a dark secret he needed to share with me. And so he did. And he told me that he was having sex with his girlfriend's seven-year-old daughter. And I asked him when the last time that that had happened. And he said it was last night. And 
I'm sorry. I, I actually, I'm not sorry. I'm unapologetic about it. I told him I would be right back. I just needed to go and make a quick phone call. And I called the cops and I called police. Um, if I know that a child is being harmed or hurt, my obligation is to that child. It is not to the guy in the recovery rooms. And there were a lot of people who shunned me in Alcoholics Anonymous and told me that what I did was wrong. They told me that when somebody shares with me something, it's in confidential, you know, it's confidential, it's in confidentiality. And my response to them is, are you kidding me? If I didn't go to the cops, I would be a co-conspirator. Like I would be also held responsible. And how could I sleep at night knowing that an innocent seven-year-old girl is being raped? Like that is insane to me. Throughout the nine years that Brandon spent in AA, he had four different men who were sexually abusing children choose him as a sponsor. And I finally was like, I, I can't do this. Like I cannot do this. And the crazy part to me was, why are you coming to me? I am a victim of child abuse. I was molested as a child repeatedly. I, I just couldn't get over the fact, like, why would they come to me for sympathy or for help? One of the men who had approached Brandon ended up going to prison for child molestation. The man's parents approached Brandon at a book signing and asked him if he would be willing to reach out to their son in prison. And his parents were like, will you call him? He wants to talk to you. And I told him, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Just because he's in recovery and I'm in recovery doesn't mean I'm going to have a conversation with your son who's, a, you know, who's an admitted child sex offender. You know, and, you know, I had to draw the line somewhere. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. So many people coming to me telling me that I was wrong for going to the cops. And... I will do, I will, I, I would do that 10 times over. At the end of the day, Brandon's loyalty is summed up by his award-winning journalism. First, his responsibility is to victims of sex abuse, and second, to the victims of drug abuse. Brandon published his memoir, Mascara Boy, in June of this year. He made the decision to leave nothing out when he wrote the book, hoping that he could relieve some of the stigma associated with drug addiction, sex addiction, and recovery. Although his past has very dark moments, his story is inspiring and his book is a must read. I just know that uh, there's a lot of guys who are out there and they're hurting, they feel alone, they feel sad, they feel depressed, and they're trying to put on that outward smile. And I just want them to know that, dude, I've been in your shoes. I know what it's like to be in that circuit world of drugs and sex. And just know that if you want out, that there's people out there to help you get out of it. Stay up to date with him on social media. The.brandon.lee. That's my handle on Instagram. Um, best way to get a hold of me, just shoot me a message there, or I'm on Facebook. Just look up Brandon Lee, and you will see um, two things populate. One is Bruce Lee's son. That is not me. Um, tragically, he's passed on. Uh, but I'm usually the second one that populates if you just look up Brandon Lee. You can see some of Brandon's art at graffitipainter.com, and you can learn more about his recovery and advocacy work, as well as resources for help at his website, escapingrockbottom.com. You can also find local AA meetings at www.aa.org.
Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. I challenge people this. When was the last time you had sober sex?